Listener Production. Eddie Perfect is one of those people who seems to be good at everything. His Midas touch has made him a star of TV and the stage, a children's presenter, a Broadway writer and composer. His work can be funny, satirical, sweet, clever and rambunctious. It's crazy that I slept with your sister. We got drunk on vodka and I totally kissed her. And his success came not just here in Australia, but overseas as well. You might know him from Shane Warne the Musical. As Mick Holland on Channel 10's Offspring. Emergency. Billy's gone into total meltdown. She's barricaded herself in the loft. Or even as the bloke who told you to look through the square window on Play School. Do you like to dance around with your teddy bear? Now back in Melbourne and having homeschooled his kids through the pandemic with wife Lucy, Eddie is taking a break from writing and composing those big budget musicals like King Kong and Beetlejuice. I'm on the bench, but coach, just put me in the game. All you gotta do is say my name. He's turned his attention to making smaller, simpler works. Shows that can be cancelled and rescheduled quickly and moved from city to city at the drop of a hat or the closing of a COVID border. And he's returned to the stage himself. Eddie joins me to talk about his changing career, what drives him to make music, art and comedy, and how artists have been ignored and left behind during COVID-19. The Weekend List is also on its way, but first, here is my conversation with Eddie Perfect. Eddie, it's been a huge year for every industry and some have been hit harder than others. The performing arts is right up there with tourism and travel. What's your experience been and that of your mates? Well, the experience has been twofold. One, there's been the obvious kind of financial ramifications of not having an industry, of having lost a huge amount of income that I think most people who work across the arts, not just as performers, but in all various levels of the arts, have experienced like a massive financial downturn. And, you know, like anyone who's lost their job in this kind of COVID period, it's financially debilitating, but it's also just hard not doing what you're doing and not being able to plan for what might potentially come next. That's been one of the hard things. It has a large impact on arts workers because of just how much um, people in the arts contribute, um, not just to the bottom line in terms of GDP to Australia, but also spiritually, you know, like artists are sort of always called upon um, or take it upon themselves to help other people when they're in times of financial or personal stress through, you know, fundraising or awareness raising or ambassadorships. And I think that the invisibility during COVID, the fact that um, the arts was sort of misunderstood or mischaracterized and then sort of relegated to the other pile um, whereas other industries were sort of named in their sort of distress. So yeah, I'd say, yeah, money and visibility were the two difficult things about it. Yeah, I really had a sense that during those long lockdowns in Melbourne in particular, but around the country, a lot of us relied on the work of artists to get us through, right? We were watching television, we were listening to music, we were watching things live online, and yet there was a sense, I think, amongst the artistic community that they'd been left behind by 
government. Do you, do you worry how the arts community are going to rebuild out of this period? I do a little bit. I also worry about how the national conversation around what the arts actually specifically is. I think that conversation is has obviously not been had or had in a sophisticated or kind of a detailed enough way because it's very easy for perhaps the average person on the street to conflate celebrities who are upset about not being in the public eye with the entirety of the arts community. And they're very different things. When you consider that more people attend the National Gallery of Victoria in a year than go to Aussie Rules Football in Melbourne, um, in fact, when you consider that the arts contribute more to the bottom line in terms of Australia's GDP than all of the sporting codes combined, then there's clearly just a kind of a communication problem. There are just thousands and thousands of just very ordinary people who have a job in the arts industry that is just a job. You know, it's just, it's just a job. It's nothing nothing more or less important than anybody else's job. And that was really difficult when, like, any job gets taken away in any time of stress. So, yeah, in terms of how the arts recover, I don't really know. Arts are so multifaceted and so large and it's such a massive, variated industry. I think that we will see some effect on people who maybe leave leave the industry to find, you know, what they might consider to be more stable jobs going to the future so they can feed their family and pay the bills. A lot of artists live gig to gig, but even artists who are at the top of their game like you are always looking out for new opportunities and excited when new opportunities came along. I know you left New York to come home during the pandemic. Were you were you a bit worried doing that, that you might miss the next exciting thing? Well, at the time, I was when we made the decision to come back to Australia from New York, it wasn't because of COVID. COVID was sort of not even registering on the kind of global yeah, right. radar when my wife and I made that decision. We decided to come back because, um, you know, we wanted to put our kids through school in Australia. We wanted that access to nature. We wanted to be amongst our community and because and our, near to our family. And that sort of, it felt like time. It felt like we'd had the experience, but um, it was perhaps time to come home. How has your experience been during the pandemic? Have you been homeschooling? Yeah, we did all of that. We did the first lockdown in Sydney. I was in, we flew from New York to Sydney because um, I was coming back to Australia to do Dolly Parton musical, Nine to Five. And that was the kind of gig that was bringing me back to Australia. But of course, by the time we um, landed that gig, uh, evaporated like everyone else's gig, and we stayed in an Airbnb because we have a house in Melbourne, but it had um, tenants in it. Obviously, we couldn't and didn't want to kick out in the middle of a pandemic, so we kind of had to just sort of rent temporary accommodation until we could kind of find a mutual time that was that was okay for our tenants to find another place, which took quite a while. So, did that first lockdown with homeschooling in Sydney, and then we came to Melbourne just. Um, I think we got maybe two weeks of face. I can't remember now. It's all very hazy, 2020. But I think we got like two weeks of face-to-face schooling with the girls before the hotel quarantine outbreak took over and we went down to the excruciatingly long lockdown. And, of course, we did all of that with our kids at the kitchen table, um, all of us sort of trying to juggle, you know, whatever little bits of work we could find between my wife and I and then also keeping you know, our kids, you know, as engaged as we could through that process and keeping spirits up as much as possible. But I think everyone with kids would 
know, you know, (laughs) how painful that kind of experience was. And I remember, um, I remember, you know, even when the kids went back to -to face-to-face school, my school, kids school had a, um, like a kind of a class expo where all the kids would show their work. But but instead of having it in the classroom, they decided to do it online. And so we kind of had to migrate back online into that world again, having been away from it for about four weeks. And it was really... um, (laughs) <laughs> hasten to use this word, but it's quite triggering. My no, it is. It's it was a trauma it. that whole homeschooling business. I like I completely sympathise doing it with my own kid and that juggle of trying to move children between parents or whoever's caring in the household and also trying to get your work done. I don't think we can yeah. underestimate how rough it was. How did you talk to your kids about about what was going on? They knew exactly what was going on in terms of you know what. COVID-19 was. And in fact, you know, there's quite quite a lot of schoolwork dealt with it. You know, what is a what is a pandemic? What other pandemics have there been historically? You know, how do people respond to them? You know, that kind of stuff. Sometimes it felt like a bit of an oversaturation. You just wanted to get away from that. And the positives of it were numerous. And I think it's a human trait to try and find the, the positives in a negative situation. And the positives for us were that we had a roof over our head and we had food on the table and our kids, um, you know, are healthy and able to attend school and had a school system and a healthcare system in Australia that was really doing its utmost to keep them in school and keep us healthy and find us a way out of this pandemic, which has obviously worked out um, and continues to work out pretty well. So, you know, practicing gratitude is a really big thing. In some respects, now that things are getting like busy all of a sudden, geez, I really didn't miss being busy. And I do miss the slowness and the connection and the in the little things about the day. So it's interesting because you kind of got like a, a baseline of what would happen if we did absolutely nothing and just hung out together. Yes, it's, it's stressful financially, but there's a lot of positives. And when you start to introduce life back into it, this kind of like culture of busyness that I remember so well before the pandemic, um, it almost feels like it's not a choice, that it just gets thrust upon you. And I think it's a real shame. I, you know, I feel like, you know, I want to be um, every, you know, like every second week, it'd be great to be like, you know, I don't know, Orthodox Jewish and just shut everything down, you know, like to find a way for things to stop um, because we all get on the hamster wheel and we sort of, don't know how to get off it. It feels like a failure or a, or a, um, a backward step. And I'm also battling with the fact that I'm just bloody tired. You know, like everything is requires more stamina than I had before. So I'm kind of grateful for things opening up and for having work. But um, yeah, I'm not match fit, that's for sure. I know you've been working on a new piece of work during lockdown and it's called Introspective and it's something you've performed in Melbourne recently. Can you tell us about the process of making it and then the process of performing again in front of real people? Regardless of whether there was a pandemic or not, I haven't actually done any solo performing. When I was in New York, I was there as a writer and I got very used to, you know, I'm quite disciplined when it comes to writing and I can... I can write fast and I, I never miss deadlines and I'm, you know, that's something that I'm pretty intense on myself about, but it's a very different energy to fronting up and performing and having performance energy and having to be, 
you know, in a show, it seemed like an obvious thing to do to have a piece that I could perform that that was small and lightweight and tourable that could be, you know, put up but then t- quickly taken down if the rules change because the rules changed so many times since when I first started planning this with my manager. And I was like, you know what? I just wanted to be me at a piano, um, two string players, no drums, no guitars, no amplified music, no loud, hot, noisy takes on things, just a kind of a, a bunch of quiet songs and storytelling about the last two years living and working in quite an intense way in New York and then coming back home to this kind of absolute stillness and quietness and, and nothingness. So it's a very calm, quiet, uh, introspective show because that's really all I've got, I've got the energy for. Sounds like you've really stripped it bare and gone back to just the real essence of what you like to perform. You touched on there working on those big Broadway musicals. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like working on King Kong and Beetlejuice and perhaps how the two were different? Both those projects were really different. Beetlejuice was the first job I booked in New York as a, as a writer. Warner Brothers Theatricals were adapting their movie title Beetlejuice into a musical. American creative team, I was the only Australian. I, I, I kind of, It was kind of a, a weird accidental miracle that I landed the gig. I sort of forced my way into the pitch process and sort of begged my way in really and they um, threw me a bone and let me pitch on it and then gave me the job. And what ensued was about four and a half years of quite intense, you know, development and wow. workshops and labs and that kind of amazing stuff. Um, King Kong came along quite a bit later after I'd gotten the job. It was a really short, well, well, relatively short for a Broadway show, short um, development process. It was about two years. Obviously a very technical-driven show because of the giant 22-foot animatronic gorilla. <laughs> that was a much more difficult process. I, I felt like a much smaller cog in a very, very large wheel. In that show, I was more like contributing songs to what was a sort of quite a hybridized production that involved puppetry and contemporary dance and cinematic projection and intense lighting. It was sort of a spectacle, whereas Beetlejuice was much more like creating a musical comedy. You know, comedy, I think, is where I live, and black comedy is what I love. And the great thing about making a comedy like we did with Beetlejuice is that every day you turn up to work and you just laugh your ass off with other comic geniuses. And I, I was just um, absolutely in my wheelhouse, and I and I had a blast, and it introduced me to, to Broadway and to a whole bunch of incredible actors and creatives and orchestrators and directors and choreographers, and um, I made – great friends and I'm happy to be still sort of working in that great sandpit of Broadway, which is awesome. A lot of artists have to wait for commercial success in their lives and waiting isn't always comfortable emotionally or financially. What would you say to someone who's listening right now who is trying to get their foot in the door in the arts in whatever aspect of the arts they're working in and a feeling like it's too hard, it might be too long, and they're not sure when they're going to get lucky, and maybe it's time to give up? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think everybody has to make that decision for themselves. Because, you know, on one hand, you could go, oh, follow your dreams, and it'll all happen. But that's not true. I think it's just about managing disappointment. 
how can you manage disappointment, still find the positives, still find a way to be grateful for what it is you do and not turn into some kind of bitter, embittered, negative, uh, disappointed, sort of shriveled up husk of a person? And I think the difficulty is it's not like, you know, you get a job at um, – the wheel factory and there's a there's a clear path up the corporate ladder and you get promoted here and then you get promoted there and then you finally get to the top. It doesn't really work like that. It's sort of circular. It's like snakes and ladders. I still find it hard. I, I just feel like it's this constant thing of having to prove myself all the time. And that is exhausting. And you think when you're in your 20s, you think, oh, well, you know, I'll keep doing this for a bit and then I'll eventually prove myself and then no one will question what I do and no one will give me notes and I'll be able to write whatever I want and it'll be all excited. But that never well, at least not in my experience. It's never happened. You're always back at square one at the start of a new project. You just got to wrestle the crocodile and in, and love the crocodile. You're clearly back home in Australia, Eddie, if you're wrestling crocodiles. Thank you so much for chatting to me. Hey, absolute pleasure. Lovely talking to you too. As you can hear, Eddie Perfect's career is characterised by variety. He's the ultimate slashy. Artist, actor, singer, composer, writer. He's also a passionate husband and father and a genuinely good bloke who wants to see the Australian theatre industry thrive once again. Welcome to The Weekend List, where Tate McGregor and I give you a few suggestions on what you can read, watch, do, see, cook, I don't know, anything else this weekend. And Tate's up first. What have you got? We've got some live performances, particularly by our one and only Eddie Perfect. The Sunset Piazza series is happening in Sydney right now in Cathedral Square, and it runs until March 21st. You can see the likes of Winston Surfshirt, Josh Pike before then, but the very own Eddie Perfect is bringing his introspective performance to Sydney for the closing night, March 21. But Jamila, you've got something we can watch on our laptops at home. I do. I absolutely binged It's a Sin on Stan last week. It's about a group of 18-year-old-ish friends who moved to London in the early 1980s. Around that same time, of course, there are reports around the world and starting to emerge in London of a new disease. That disease turns out to be AIDS. And it is the most poignant, beautiful, short series, only five episodes of TV I've seen in such a long time. You fall in love with these characters very quickly. And when the reality of this disease starts to impact their lives, look, let's just say you'll be sobbing as much as me. They think it's this virus, AIDS. There are boys dying all over the world from sex. Don't be ridiculous. That would be all over the news. The government knows all about it and they're keeping it quiet. Enough from me, Tate. On to you. Have you got something happier? I do. I've got some music for you to listen to. Three ex-Disney stars came out with albums this week. Huge. We've got Nick Jonas with Spaceman, the eponymous debut EP from Joshua Bassett, who was from High School Musical, the musical, the series, and Selena Gomez with Revelation. Get your ears across some ex-Disney stars. That's all we've got time for on the weekend briefing today. But please come back to us on Monday morning where Tom and Annika will be here bright and early to get you across the news of the day. Listener.